0: The Sharp Show, featuring irreverent debates about politics, religion, and popular culture. Unscripted, with Sharp's off the cuff remarks occasionally provoking anger. Monday mornings, 8 to 9 a.m.
1: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From, Victor, From Victim to Victor. She sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV, Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy Evening, Mari.
0: Good evening. Well, you know, just recently I finished a terrific book that was terrifying, intriguing, and just really enlightening. And you were stealing it from me half the time while I was trying to read it. It's called Thinking Like a Terrorist, Insights of a Former FBI Undercover Agent. And that is by Mike German, who we're going to be interviewing tonight. I was so thrilled that he was able to come on the show. Listen to what they say about this book when I I ordered it. As the fifth full year of America's global war on terrorism continues. Statistics concerning terrorist attacks show a disturbing trend. From a 21-year high in 2003, attacks tripled in 2004 and then doubled in 2005. And as the incidence of terrorist attacks increased, so has the number of terrorists. While the primary leaders of the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the Al-Qaeda in Iraq remain at large, a 2006 Department of Defense study reportedly identified 30 new Al-Qaeda-affiliated terrorist groups that have been created since September 11, 2001. We may not have the metrics that measure our successes in the war on terrorism, but these realities certainly illuminate our failures. In the book, Thinking Like a Terrorist, Former FBI counterterrorism agent Mike German contends that the overreaching problem is a fundamental failure to understand terrorists, namely, what they want and how they intend to get it. When our counterterrorism policies are driven by misunderstanding and misperception, mis- we shouldn't be surprised at all at the results. Today's terrorists have a real plan, a blueprint that has brought them victory in the past that they are executing to perfection now. Moreover, their plan is published and available to anyone who bothers to read it. Once the terrorist plan is understood, we can develop and implement more effective counterterrorism strategies. We're going to talk with the former undercover agent who infiltrated the neo-Nazi terrorist groups in the United States. Let me tell you a little bit more about Mike German. Mike German now has gone to be the Policy Counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union in Washington DC. He's going to tell us a little about what he's doing. But he's a 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement with the FBI. He served as a special agent with the FBI where he specialized in domestic and covert operations. As an undercover agent, a German twice infiltrated violent neo-Nazis using constitutionally sound law enforcement techniques. Mr. German's final assignment with the FBI was as a counterterrorism instructor at the FBI National Academy. He taught courses there on extremism in democratic societies and developed a graduate level training program for state, local, and international law enforcement officers. He left the FBI to make Congress and the public aware of continuing deficiencies in FBI counterterrorism operations. Prior to joining the Washington office at the ACLU, he had frequently lectured on counterterrorism and intelligence matters. His commentary has appeared in the National Law Journal, the Washington Post, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Miami Herald. He's the author of Squaring the Error, published by the Strategic Studies Institute of the U.S. Army War College, and his first book that I just finished, great book, Thinking Like a Terrorist, was published in January 2007, and he is currently an adjunct professor for Law Enforcement and Terrorism at the National Defense University, and he's a senior fellow with the GlobalSecurity.org. So I am so thrilled that you joined us tonight, Mike. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you very much for having me and for that nice introduction.
0: Oh, goodness, what a book. What an what experience. Going undercover in a terrorist group must be it's totally terrifying, what sort of training were you given before? Then it didn't—it didn't sound like much, was it?
2: No, it sure wasn't. Uh, it literally was—you know—wear w- some jeans and a T-shirt tomorrow because you're going undercover. Um, <laughs> e- e- you know, I was really sort of thrown out there. And uh, eventually, months after the investigation started, I was able to to get some training. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in undercover techniques, but but never received any sort of training in how terrorist groups operated, and I uh, had to learn that uh, all on the job.
0: Wow, you were so brave. I mean, I, I read about how you were just kind of thrown into it, but that must have been uh, some experience. I mean, what did you do? How did you be undercover and, and still live a normal life? Or did you live a normal life?
2: You know, it's interesting. In, 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 I continued doing undercover work through the, throughout the rest of my career, so about 12 years of it. And we had a saying that uh, it, it's normal to have abnormal reactions to abnormal circumstances. And it certainly was uh, an abnormal circumstance living like that. But, you know, you have sort of fell into a routine and uh, I always treated it very much as, as my job. It was you know, very professional, so you know, I made sure that there was ways that I could get time to myself and time to see family and, and, uh, and you know, of course, do all the uh, necessary things to document the investigation as I was going along, so, so I actually spent quite a bit of time with other agents and other law enforcement officers during wow. the operations.
0: You know, we often think terrorists are crazy because they have such hateful ideologies and, you know, they commit such horrible, unspeakable acts. But to be a successful undercover agent, you had to interact with them and you had to understand them. And <laughs> did you find them to be insane or how did you think about them?
2: You know, I found them uh Chillingly sane. <laughs> mm. um, you know, I, when, I, when I first started, that's sort of what I was afraid of, is, you know, how do you interact with somebody who's, who's crazy and, you know, is so violent that they'll just sort of at, at a whim go off and hurt somebody. And what I found was that they were actually quite sane and that their violence was very uh, specifically designed as part of a st- strategic tactic and, and that it wasn't haphazard. Uh, at all, that it was actually part of a a very complex strategy.
0: I know one of the things I noticed in your book was you were talking about that they they really believe in what they're doing, you know, whether it's, you know, the Ku Klux Klan or whoever it is, they really believe in what they're doing and don't see themselves as criminals. I think that was huge for me. Yeah,
2: and and it it was interesting dealing with them that way because really... uh, it, it enabled me to uh... engage with them much better because really i found them to be very similar to me in a lot of ways in other words i was sort of taking a big risk uh... because i was enamored with this idea of justice and and protecting the innocent from criminals and and was willing to take a big personal risk in order to to do my job and they were sort of the same way they had an idea and uh, as much as i disagreed with that idea they. Felt that, you know, in, in fulfilling their ideology, they had to sacrifice themselves and, and put themselves at risk uh, in order to accomplish their goals. So, Yeah, they were, they were the mindset. dark
0: side of what you were, the yeah. white side. I mean, they were almost like a mirror image, but the dark side.
2: Right, but they considered <laughs> themselves the good guys, and they considered me the dark side. So, you know, they really considered themselves very moral. And, uh, you know, within the context of their ideology, typically they were. You know, I, I never had any concerns that they would steal from me or, you know, otherwise treat me bad. A- unless, of course, they found out I was an FBI agent. But, <laughs> right. But, you know, they, they really considered themselves a, 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 a cut above. And I had grown up in the military and it was almost that same sort of, you know, we're, we're the, the soldiers protecting the, uh, the weaker members of our group.
0: And that that is so interesting. When you were talking about that, what all the different kinds of terrorism, whether it's domestic terrorists or these foreign terrorists, they they have a way of thinking. Let's talk about that because you titled your book "Thinking Like a Terrorist," which I thought was great. And the front cover is so scary with this guy, mm-hmm. you know, with a gun and up, you know, pointing up, and this mask over his face. It, it it's it's intriguing. So. Why is it important to know how the terrorists think, and how do they think? Uh,
2: well, like I said, they're, they're very uh, logical, and their violence is strategic. They actually do have a plan, and, and their, their goal is to, to accomplish their ideological goals by using violence as a means to, to force the government to respond to them in a certain way. And and what they're actually looking for is an overreaction of the government. So in my case, uh, there was a group of uh, neo-Nazi skinheads, and there this was in Los Angeles uh, right after the
0: uh, Rodney riots, King? Yeah. the
2: Rodney King riots. Right. And what they wanted to do was bomb the first AME church in Los Angeles. Actually, not just bomb it, to it, attack it during uh, services and with machine guns and pipe bombs, um, and and sort of an, a. You know catastrophic assault on the congregation and uh, the idea of it was that that would be such a horrible event that the black community in los angeles would would rise up and start indiscriminately attacking white people and their goal was once once white people who didn't want anything to do with the white supremacist movement were being attacked on the streets they would have to come into the movement to protect themselves so, so what I learned from that was that this this use of violence is very strategic to gain a certain response, and it's the response they're looking for. That, you know, they almost approach the violence as as a necessary evil. You know, they recognize that that's something that that's uh, very difficult to explain even to their own followers, but they feel it's necessary to accomplish that goal of forcing what they called the sheeple, the people. Who, white people who weren't part of the white supremacist movement into the movement uh, for their own protection.
0: Yeah, so if they instigate and they get a response that's violent, then they can say how bad the responders are.
2: Right. And, and, <laughs> and you know, so much of their, uh, their um, psychological... Actually, that's probably a bad word. So much of their... Um, Statements And what they're saying is trying to set their group up as a victim, a victim of some injustice.
0: Right. And,
2: uh, you know, depending on on which group you're talking about, sometimes they, you know, there's the black helicopter crowd that thinks, you know, there's one world government and all this strange conspiracy theories. But in order to make that real to their followers they have to have some some sort of reaction to what they're doing so that's really their intent it has you know people always talk about terrorism as communication it's not really communication with the government they're attacking it's it's trying to communicate to other members of what they would call their own community who they don't really have any ties to and and who otherwise would not be interested in talking with them
0: Right. So so, you know, here you dealt a lot with the neo-Nazis and you were you were able to infiltrate them. But people tend to think that al-Qaeda is very sophisticated and very different. But what you explain is basically that al-Qaeda and all these terrorist groups have a a similar strategy. So so explain that, because I think that was the thing that really hit me. You know, thinking about how these people really have this blueprint, like you talked about. Talk about that, because that's pretty crazy. Crazy.
2: Well, when you read what terrorists write, and and that's an important thing to know, is that terrorists actually write all this stuff down, because they don't have any other way of communicating with their potential followers. Um, They're all very similar, regardless of the ideology. Um, So the ideology is almost on a separate track from this strategic use of violence and terrorism and the people who are engaged in the violence are very pragmatic and they look to other terrorist movements either even terrorist movements that have nothing to do with their ideology for uh, to see how how things worked and and what methods they can adopt to be successful and Uh, Often after 9-11, they talk about al-Qaeda as having uh, metamorphosized into this uh, loosely affiliated groups of independent cells, growing homegrown terrorism. And that's talked about as a new phenomenon. And, you know, al-Qaeda is given this genius status for having developed this method. But this was actually a method that white supremacists developed. Almost 30 years ago, uh, a Klan leader by the name of Louis Bean wrote an essay called Leaderless Resistance where he talked about how because white supremacists were under uh, uh, pressure in the United States that rather than having an overt leadership they would have leaderless resistance, and, and phantom cells would would form throughout the country, operating independently based on a common ideology, and that's simply the method that Al Qaeda adopted. So it was nothing new; it was something they stole from white supremacists. The white supremacists have been doing for thirty years.
0: Wow, and and you talk about even the neo Nazis use the same kind of uh, strategy. Now, now right, I-
2: they, they absolutely they read each other's material, and a lot of it that Louis Beam wrote about is is you know, directly related to um, something written by, a, I mean, one of my favorite uh, writers who was who a terrorist was this guy, Carlos Marighella who was a Bra- Brazilian communist. Uh, and he wrote a manual called the Manual of the Urban Guerrilla. And, and that manual is is basically what has been adopted by every terrorist group since then. And if you read the the irish republican army's green book which is their terrorist manual it says basically the same thing that carlos marighella wrote a little bit before they did and if you read the al-qaeda manual it's basically the same as those two manuals so so it's interesting that that it this is a tried and true method that is being used it's not something that's being that you know they don't have to create the wheel over again
0: right so back
2: to these other methods
0: yeah, so, so Mike, when you read all these things, just so you'd, you'd learn, I mean, you kind of were self-taught, correct, by, by going and finding all this information to understand how they think?
2: Right, and actually taught by the terrorists themselves. I mean, they were really the ones, you know, the FBI never taught me that stuff. They brought me in and showed me these materials and said, this is how it works, and explained it, and, and really taught me how to be a terrorist. Right. So...
0: Yeah. So, so what they did was they they were your trainers, and they they didn't mind that you didn't know, right? In fact, they loved it probably that you didn't know, and figured you're just you're you're like a sponge, susceptible. Right. I, I,
2: I was their dream come true. You know, I was somebody who who they could mold into the soldier they could put out on the street to actually do things. So, you know, for them. You know, not that they didn't understand that there was a risk associated with trusting somebody new, but they have to. You know, I mean, people talk about how, uh, you know, it it would be so impossible to infiltrate al-Qaeda. And what they don't realize is these groups have to recruit. They have to bring in new members because it's so hard to be a member. Number one, you're getting arrested, you're getting killed. You know, they're losing people left and right, and people just get tired of it. It's a very hard life, so people are dropping out constantly constantly. And, and they have to constantly recruit to keep the numbers up. And you look li- at a guy like Johnny Walker-Lind, right. who is a white kid from California. From
0: Orange County, right, right from here.
2: Exactly. You know, it's hard to, you know, if he can do it, anybody else can do it. It's, it, it has nothing to do with with any specific requirements. They're recruiting constantly.
0: Right. So, so a- And they s-
2: recognize that as a huge weakness as well. If you read what they, what they write, they'll talk about that as, hey, you know, this is one of our big weaknesses that – that we have to pull in people and, and, you know, they can be spies.
0: Right, right. So, so basically they are, they're looking for anybody who is looking for something like that, to have an ideology, to have something to believe in, to have a group to belong in, to have somebody to educate them and lead them.
2: Right, and, and, and as I said, they do, the ideology is less important to them. They're much more pragmatic. They, they would, you know, a, a white supremacist group, as an example, the the actual terrorists within the group have much less interest in a guy who, uh, you know, knows all the history of Hitler's Third Reich and much more interest in a guy who knows how to make a a submachine gun. You know, they're they're very practical and they they want the instruments that will help them go to war. So, you know, I mean, the last case that I had that I left the FBI over was actually a case where a supporter of an Islamic terrorist group met with, uh, and tried to recruit a white supremacist group to work for him.
0: <laughs>
2: so, you know, again, here's two ideologies that you wouldn't think could sit in a room together, and yet because it's, the, it's that violent side of it, um, they're, they're more than willing to sort of close their eyes to some of the ideological conflicts and, and get along uh, on the strategic side of it.
0: Wow. We're speaking with Mike German, who is an incredible author of uh, a new book that I just read. It's out this year. It's called Thinking Like a Terrorist, Insights of a Former FBI Undercover Agent. And Mike was one of those undercover agents, and now he's also become a whistleblower, and he's also trying to instruct Congress and our, our whole society about what really is going on with these terrorists. Tell us about the whistleblowing.
2: Um, It was after 9-11. Shortly after 9-11, I was asked to go undercover again in a case that, as I said, involved a supporter of an Islamic terrorist group um, who had reached out to a white supremacist terrorist group looking for assistance, and uh, the FBI managers that were responsible for that case well, it, when they asked me to, to participate in it, I went down to look at the case, and I found that it, it was being handled very poorly, and uh, and a lot of the evidence wasn't being collected appropriately, and uh, the investigation wasn't being documented as it needed to be in order to be prosecuted. So I reported those violations, and uh, rather than address the, the deficiencies in the case, they tried to cover it up and actually hid evidence and uh... and tried to pretend that this meeting had never happened Uh, Mm. and and for for the first six months i didn't understand why uh... the fbi wasn't responding appropriately to my complaint and then i found out that they had actually denied that this meeting had even happened and uh... i had a copy of the transcript of the meeting so when i brought that to fbi headquarters i expected that things would turn around and they would get the investigation back on track uh... but unfortunately The FBI headquarters also went along with trying to cover it up. And uh, after two years of of seeing nothing happening, I finally decided that I needed to report it to Congress and let them know that the deficiencies that existed at the FBI prior to 9-11 really hadn't been fixed.
0: Wow. So what what happened when you did this, when you went to Congress?
2: Um, Well, just from reporting it internally, I was— prevented from working on other undercover cases, prevented from working on that case anymore. And, and basically, you know, 80 percent of my job duties evaporated. Uh, and uh, I s- spent a lot of time just sit- sitting in a room waiting for this thing to be resolved. And after two years of that, I decided to go ahead and report it to Congress. And I knew once I reported to Congress that, that I would have to leave the FBI. Right, so, right, So I chose right. to resign. So and who
0: did uh, you go to in Congress? Did you did you bring it to a particular senator? or?
2: I brought it to, uh, I I initially sent a letter to the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, Pat Roberts, and uh, to Senator Grassley and the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Senator Grassley's staff responded and and got back to me and asked for a meeting. So from then on, I I mostly uh, dealt with the Judiciary Committee and Senator Grassley's staff.
0: And has anything come out of that? Has anything really... Changed? I mean, there's been a lot of investigation into the FBI and CIA lately. About, right. But I mean, out of specifically out of what you reported, has anything really changed? Or
2: what? Well, what, the FBI, Senator Grassley asked for uh, the documents supporting uh, my claims because the FBI wouldn't let me give them any documents, would only let me tell them verbally uh, sort of a, an outline of what happened. Um, so, the, the Grassley staff had asked for. Uh, documents and they were sort of slow walked over there but after two years he finally got a copy of the transcript and and now meanwhile the FBI and the Department of Justice Inspector General were supposedly doing their own internal investigations and their public reports actually say you know there was no terrorism discussed in this transcript So, (laughs) so when Senator Grassley two years later finally got the transcript he actually uh, just this march released portions of the transcript showing that indeed terrorism was being discussed and he confronted uh dr- FBI director Robert Mueller uh with with those portions of the transcript uh in a hear- in a FBI oversight hearing in march so that was it, i mean for me it, it, that that that's all i wanted to come out i just wanted the truth to come out because really the the, the horrible thing about this is is this was you know this was two terrorist groups talking about why they would work together. And, yes. and that, that is critical intelligence for the intelligence community to, to, to read and understand how these groups work. And yet it was being suppressed by the FBI.
0: And you talked about that in your book, how, you know, de- that they don't see that the domestic terrorists really um, have you know, a lot to do with the foreign terrorists, that, you know, right. you, you really need to look at the whole thing. And this is a perfect example of how they, are, they might be willing to work together. And what better way for al-Qaeda to infiltrate the United States than to do it through terrorism with inside terrorists?
2: Exactly. And, and you know, uh, people think that, oh, well, you know, they would never be able to get along. But, you, you know, just in the last year and a half, I think two years, there were uh, Irish Republican Army terrorists arrested in Colombia meeting with uh, terrorists from FARC. Now, yeah. that's a narco terrorist group, Marxist or Maoist, I'm, I'm sorry. And then, you know, the IRA, which is a nationalistic terrorist group, you would think these groups have absolutely nothing in common. But of course, the bomb makers and the, the uh, uh, armorers have a lot in common. And that's what they're getting together to talk about. And, and that's what I think the counterterrorism uh, officials in the United States don't understand.
0: They right. obviously don't understand it. Right. And and the fact now that we have this the internet and we have such you know easy ways to communicate anywhere in the world and obviously they're using these things. Right. And um, it it makes no sense to me. Now, when you got educated by these terrorists, the domestic terrorists, and you went back to the FBI and said, look what I'm learning here, guys. I mean, you must have done that, right?
2: Well, I tried to. Um, (laughs) You know, it it was being worked as a criminal investigation. So I was focused on making sure that we we gathered the evidence appropriately and and went through the trials and and got all the subjects convicted, which, which worked very well. And then when that process was over, I, I called the FBI's Domestic Terrorism Unit and said, hey, you know, all the prosecutions are done, you know, let's talk about what I learned.
0: And right, right. And they said
2: they weren't interested. And uh, I had, to this day, the Domestic Terrorism Unit has never given me an operational debriefing despite two successful long-term deep cover undercover assignments in domestic terrorist groups.
0: Did you send your book to them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, you know, it's kind of funny that you say that. Uh, part of uh, becoming an FBI agent and getting a clearance, you have to sign a... a, a
0: non-disclosure.
2: N- non-disclosure. So yeah. they, ha- they get to read what I write and clear it before it goes out to make sure that I'm not talking about classified matters. So I submitted the book to them with that line in it about how the Domestic Terrorism Unit had never interviewed me. So I, I fully expected... <laughs> to receive a phone call saying, hey, by the way, before we let you publish this book, we want to have a sit-down with you. So, yeah. so, you know, even if it wasn't to really get get any information, it was just so you would sh- quit saying that.
0: I know it, exactly. <laughs> but they never did. I, that's arrogance. <laughs> you
2: well, know, and it's part of the problem is, is yeah. that there is such a, uh, a culture within the counterterrorism world that that they know what they're doing and and you know there's all these quote so-called terrorism experts who talk about this you know how terrorists do things without ever having actually interacted with a real terrorist right so they're like just
0: from afar yeah
2: you know it's like you know, it's like somebody studying animal behavior by only <laughs> studying people in a zoo. You know, because really that's their only access to terrorism is prisons. But of course, right. what somebody in prison is telling you, as as most law enforcement officers know, is highly unreliable because they're usually trying to get some something yeah. out of it. If 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 nothing else, just somebody to talk to because their lives are so boring in prison. Right. So you really can't trust what they would say, and yet. There's a body of information, academic information, on how terrorists think that is based on those jailhouse interviews.
0: Ugh, unbelievable. Yeah. So how about this? When you're, when you're teaching at the National Defense University, mm-hmm. okay, are you able to, I mean, what is the National Defense University anyway? Uh,
2: it's, a mili- it's part of the, the a, a series of military universities, uh, you know, the National War College, and, and it's based in Washington, D.C. at Fort McNair. And I teach at a school called the uh, School of National Security Executive Education. And uh, they were very good to me and let me develop a course on law enforcement and terrorism. And and that course basically follows the book. Oh, good. So I was going to say
0: you're at least able – I mean – what a pity that it just has to be some people who are, you know, in the general public like me who's not going to really investigate a terrorist. I mean, you should you have such a wealth of knowledge and experience to be able to share this and it just seems like such a waste that they're not using you. It's it it just blows my mind. So at least you're able to teach these kinds of issues at that National Defense University.
2: Right, and and, and, and they're very receptive to, to what I say there. You know, I've I found that, uh, particularly in the military, um, they seem to really understand that things aren't going as well as they should be and, and that there must be some other answer, and, and they're searching for new, new options. So I, I've been very pleased with the response that I've received.
0: You know, one of the things that really, I guess, was... Enlightening to me or shocking to me was when you were talking in your book about half after two thousand nine eleven, that the that Al Qaeda really they didn't expect to have such a a you know a uh, a response from the the world community for what they did. They I guess they didn't think that they were going to be as uh successful as they were and it really backfired on them because there was so much sympathy for the united states and then we blew it we talked to about that because that really made a lot of sense to me right i mean i remember on 9-11 i was actually in bangkok Mm. (laughs) and um it was terrifying because we were uh, walking down the street after eating dinner and we you know there was a like a Uh, Travel agency that had a TV in the window, and we're looking, and it looked like the Sears Tower on fire. We didn't know what it was. It was nine o'clock at night in Bangkok and nine o'clock in the morning in New York, and we're going, What is that? And we come back and we see this, and so here we are watching from Bangkok and hearing what they're saying about it. And there was so much sympathy in the Asian Wall Street Journal at first. Right. Everybody was all over. And here, you you know, you're out of the country. It was scary for us.
2: I bet, yeah. But
0: there was so much sympathy all over the place. And then when... The president said, we're at war, we don't know who we're at war with. Then it started changing, and they were calling us arrogant, and we must deserve this. And it was was really a a strange situation. So talk about that for us.
2: Right. And, you know, it's an interesting thing, too, because... The terrorist, you know, he, he's, he's, it's a very weak position. It, you know, the, the resort to violence it demonstrates the, the weakness of their political position. So they feel like they can't accomplish, it by, accomplish their goals through the, the normal process, so they have to use this horrible thing, terrorism, in order to further their cause. And they recognize that that's a huge problem for them. In fact, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is the number two man, so-called, of al-Qaeda, Wrote a book called "The Nights Under the Prophet," uh, "Nights Under the Banner of the Prophet," um, and he talks about what he calls the Shima effect, and th- that had to do with a bombing that his group did in Egypt, where a 12-year-old girl was killed, and that there was such bad press from having killed this 12-year-old girl that 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 his group had to recognize that there was this Shima effect that whenever they committed an act of violence, there was going to be a lot of sympathy for the victims, Right. and, and that they that, that was a problem for, for the terrorist group. And, you know, I think they underestimated the, the the international response, not so much the U.S. response, but that that the international community was willing to, to come to the aid of the United States. And you remember at first, you know, even countries like Syria and Iran were helpful
0: exactly. initially
2: in, in the in the invasion of Afghanistan and, and the search for Al Qaeda uh, around the world. And it was really only after, uh, you know, when, when the drumbeats for, for the invasion of Iraq started uh, really beating loudly that the international community started pulling away its support. And, you know, I think if we had concentrated on staying within that sort of acceptance of the international community and, and doing things, of, in accordance with international law and and with the appropriate uh, uh, limits on how we were using force, I think we would have been much more successful.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that because I think people are saying, "Well, what were we supposed to do? Turn the other cheek?" You know that that. We couldn't do that. But I think one of the main issues that you talk about that was so important is to focus on the criminal aspect of what these guys do instead of the ideology, you know, the the, the evil cruxes, you know. Right. Yeah. So talk about that, because that was another enlightening thing for me to learn from your book.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things I found interesting when I first joined the the white supremacist terrorist groups was that when they had a member in jail, they called him a POW. Even if they were arrested on, you know, drug charges or whatever, they were referred to as a prisoner of war. And, uh, and I found that odd, you know, especially having grown up in the military. Um, but what I came to understand was they, they, in order to consider themselves the good guys, they can't look at themselves as criminals. You know, they're soldiers in a war. You know, that's why they call themselves, you know, the Irish Republican Army or, you know, the brigades or, you know, the, the battalions, you know, militias. Or even the Ku Klux Klan,
0: like yeah. Right. Yeah.
2: You know, they're, they're very into this idea of themselves as soldiers, and they hate being called criminals. And if you look at other terrorist groups like the IRA, uh, you know, the, the IRA hunger strike was over a process of criminalization where they took these people who were being interred they took away their political status and made them treat be treated in the prison system as common criminals and they went on hunger strike not to protest you know the british in northern ireland or you know the rights for the catholic community in northern to what they were protesting was wearing prison clothes right. they didn't want to wear prison clothes because that identified them as criminals and it was so important to them that they actually starved themselves to death 10 of them did
0: right rather than be called
2: criminals rather a criminal. than be called criminals yeah. and and when you know that that should be a, a light bulb over the head of every counter terrorist who says okay if that's what they really are afraid of that's the way we should treat them and we should treat them as criminals we should never uh, acknowledge any politics behind their act and just treat it as a criminal act because i found inside the inside these organizations you know, in a group of, say, a hundred white supremacists, there are really only three or four who are willing to actually go out and commit violence. And those three or four people are looked at, are eyed with suspicion by the rest of the group, because the rest of the group doesn't think it's necessary to use violence. You know, they they have the same hateful ideology, but they just don't make that leap that we need to, to commit acts of violence. And What what those four people in that group realize is that unless we're seen by our own community as doing the right thing for the right reasons, we're not going to be able to be successful. So that's why they're so afraid of being called criminals or treated as criminals, because they'll they'll lose effectiveness even within their group.
0: Right, so yeah. even calling people or putting them in the in a category of Al Qaeda actually lifts them up rather Absolutely. than saying this is a murderer or this exactly this. yeah and, so, and it would
2: be so much easier to just treat them treat them as murderers and and call them murderers and and you know the United Nations has ha- have struggled for decades to try to come up with a definition of terrorism and one of the things I say is. Don't worry about the definition of terrorism. You know, it's just crime. Talk about it as a crime and treat it as a crime. And that way you can build um, mechanisms to, to prosecute these people for their crimes. And that will actually go much further towards preventing future violence than giving the terrorists what they want, which is to be treated as soldiers.
0: Even, even at Guantanamo Bay, it's almost like we're treating them as soldiers, wouldn't you say?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's interesting, uh, the statement that was released by uh, Khalid Sheikh Muhammad, who was one of the masterminds of, of 9-11. And, you know, rather than try to defend himself, he said, Oh, no, you know, I'm proud to be an enemy combatant. You know, because again, that gives him that status when, you know, if, if he was being charged as a murderer, I'm sure he wouldn't say I'm proud to be a murderer.
0: Right, right. Uh,
2: so, uh, so we, Far too much we're playing into their hands when, when we do these types of things and go beyond the rule of law, because when they're trying to encourage their followers to commit violence, basically their argument is, the laws don't matter, because the government doesn't obey the law, so why should we? Right. And the government is oppressing us, so if the government doesn't obey the law, we don't have to obey the law, and that's a hard argument to make under most circumstances, but you know, certainly after 9-11, it's a much easier argument for al-Qaeda terrorists to make now than it would have been prior to that. And, and I believe the reason we've seen this exponential growth of terrorism worldwide is because we have allowed them that argument, that it's much easier to convince their followers that the United States does not follow the rule of law, so they don't have to either.
0: Right, and then they are victims again. Exactly. And then as soon as they're victims, then they have a right to, to retaliate. So right. it's it's like this vicious circle that doesn't end.
2: Right, and and it's part of their plan. I mean, it's all, you know, terrorism's like a sucker punch. You know, they they want to be the the victim, so they go up and they punch the big guy in the in the in the mouth, and, and stand there and take the beating, happy to take the beating because now they can portray themselves as a victim. <laughs> and, and encourage more people to come in. You know, I, I mean, it's interesting. Again, you know, I, I always go back to reading what the terrorists themselves write because I think it's, it's a much more realistic uh, portrayal of, of what it is they're, they're trying to accomplish than reading the so-called terrorism experts. And if you look at what the IRA said about the conflict in Northern Ireland, they said the British troops were their best recruiter because every time the British troops did something outrageous, that increased their recruitment. And right. they said, you know, the, the uh, torture that the British troops did, you know, they they couldn't keep the doors open. You know, they had so many recruits showing up, they couldn't even manage the number of recruits when that stuff, when that stuff started leaking out. You know, the internment process, and that's Again, kind of
0: what's happening in Iraq too. Uh,
2: exactly, and and it, you know, it, what's what's also shocking about it, and and I sort of in the book bring through a couple of different, you know. Uh, terrorism in Algeria, terrorism in Ireland, and terrorism in the United States, is, is that the response is almost always the same. In mm. other words, in France, you know, they did the internment, and they did the, the profiling, they did the torture, and none of those things worked. And yet, you know, later on, when, when the Br- British had the problem in Northern Ireland, they used the exact same techniques. And again, they didn't work. And, you know, here we are in, in the so-called global war on terrorism, and we're using those exact same techniques again, even though history shows us they didn't work.
0: Yeah, it's and, like they say that, you know, if you keep doing the same thing and it doesn't work, then, right. and you keep repeating it, then that's insanity. <laughs>
2: right. And, and particularly with the torture. I mean, that's really, to me, the... the most horrible part of of where we are today that, um, you know, the techniques that that the British used in Northern Ireland that at least one court had called torture at one point and certainly cruel and humane and degrading treatment were hooding, stress positions, uh, subjecting prisoners to loud noise. uh,
0: No sleep. No
2: sleep, sleep deprivation and, uh, and manipulation of diet. And you know, those, you know, you look at the pictures of Guantanamo and those the guys with the hoods on their head and, you know, in isolation and the stress positions and all those things you saw from Abu Ghraib right. are exactly the same techniques. They didn't work in Northern Ireland. They aren't working now. You know, it, it's ridiculous that, that we don't learn from the past and, and we use methods that, that there is actual evidence that these methods don't work and are actually counterproductive. Because, speak, if you ta- yeah. again, if you talk to these terrorists you know, uh, Sadi Yasef, who was an Algerian member of the National Liberation Front, he said, you know, the torturers were, were our best recruiters. You know, that torture really helped us in our movement.
0: Right, right. So we're creating this. We're speaking right. with Mike German, who is the author of this new book, which is fantastic, Thinking Like a Terrorist, Insights of a Former FBI Undercover Agent. And Mike was a former undercover agent, and now he's trying to bring these issues to, to light so we can really fight terrorism as, as it should be fought. And let's talk a little bit about that because that's – so what – you were talking throughout the book about what doesn't work in the beginning. And then you talk about what does work. And one of the things you, we just talked about a few minutes ago was treating them like criminals, which they are. They're committing crimes. Right. They're hurting people. They're killing people. They're, they're actual murderers. Right. So, so what – how do we do this without looking like we're soft?
2: Well, I mean, what I get to at the end of the book is, is that, you know, there was this group of uh, young radicals who uh, took on the superpower of their day and, and overthrew that government. And, you know, of course, were our founding fathers. And right. when they sat down to create their own government, I think they really built the best counterterrorism strategy ever developed. And it was the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And if you look at that document as a counterterrorism strategy, it works perfectly. You know, the First Amendment protections on free speech and assembly uh, address that issue I was talking about, where where the people who are who are, propo- are proponents of the ideology are not necessarily the people that the government needs to worry about, because the ideology isn't isn't the issue; the violence is the issue. Exactly, and, it, and,
0: and that's it, that isn't how we've been treating it. We've been treating exactly the opposite: is that the ideology, right? And that's also causing the, you know, the, the uh, discrimination against Muslim people right. and, and others for, for their views on, on God and religion. <laughs> right.
2: Right. And, and, you know, that's the, exactly the wrong approach, because what happens in that room I described of 100 white supremacists, only four of which are actually terrorists, if you brand all of them as evil then you've just created 96 extra problems that you didn't have the day before. And you've also given the, the four terrorists in the room a much better platform from which to, to talk to the 96 and say, see, we told you, you know, the, the government is oppressing you and, and denying you your rights, so you have to fight. And, and that's why there's such an increase in terrorism.
0: Right, because they're becoming more cohesive and more that it's us against them.
2: Exactly, which is exactly what they want. That's exactly how they describe the world. It's us against them. And, of course, right after 9-11, that's exactly what our government put out. You know, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists. Right, you're the
0: axis of evil or you're with us.
2: Right, and there's a lot of people sitting on the fence in between who now have to make a decision that they didn't want to make.
0: You right. know, what was interesting is how you talked about how they planned ahead of time, like for the Madrid bombing. They mm-hmm. they were they were strategic about knowing, well, who's going to fall, who's going to, you know, kind of drop off the uh, the radar screen there and 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 not support the United States as soon as we do this. And that was it, it was also strategic. Right. And and we played right into it.
2: Right. And and that's sort of the the flip side of the coin with with considering your enemies evil because if you if you consider them evil you, you forget that they're actually people and that they're making informed decisions based on rational thought and you know when you look at, at their strategy you know they said the way we'll work it, it defeat the united states is the same way we defeated the soviet union we, we coax them into invading a middle eastern country and then once they're there we can isolate them and part of the the bombings in Europe was a strategy of isolating the US and Iraq that if if they could attack the european countries that were supporting us they would pull out which worked with spain and uh, and they actually had a document published before the madrid bombings that said you know which country should we attack first well spain is the weakest link so let's attack spain first and then london so there was the spain madrid bombing and shortly after that, the London bombings. And, you know, it should have been no surprise to anybody who was really paying attention.
0: So what about the international community? What about the UN? You know, you talk about, you know, we need to work with the international community. Mm -hmm. But how do we do that? I mean, the UN seems to be so ineffective.
2: Uh, Well... It, you know, it, it has been ineffective. And, and the problem is, and I think that the real missed opportunity we had was it was right after 9-11, when there was that international uh, continuity, that there was an opportunity to build the United Nations and, and to build some international um, structures so that, you know, there could be international criminal prosecutions where everybody's evidence was collected in a transparent and, and proper manner so that it could be trusted in any court across you know the international community uh rather than the the method that we instead chose which was this sort of extra legal you know with, whether it's the renditions or or the you know detentions without due process and all those things now that that actually make it much harder because these other countries look to us as the leader, and if we're not following the rule of law, they're not going to either. And that breakdown, I think, is going to be really one of the, the long-term consequences of, of the approach that we've taken. And I think that it would have been much better if we had built transparent and accountable systems so that the rule of law could be extended to every country and that the international community at large could be trusted to You know, when when country a said we're arresting this person, that everybody would be able to look at the evidence and and know that that's an appropriate arrest and not based on politics.
0: Right. So, Mike, we made some mistakes. So what do we do about that mistake? How do we work now with the international community to rebuild? I mean, we I mean, we had Tony Blair, who was our buddy and he's Mm -hmm. gone now. And, you know, so how do we work with the international community? Because we are not the only ones who are the subject of terrorism.
2: Right. Right, and, and, and it's a growing problem, not a, a shrinking problem. Um, you know, I, I think we have to reestablish the rule of law, uh, not just in the United States, not just in, in the United States' efforts uh, abroad in this problem, but, but in all circumstances and in all countries. And part of, of that and building a sort of transparency and accountability is acknowledging mistakes that you've made. And, you know, it, it's hardening to hear now some administration officials uh, calling to close Guantanamo Bay because they're starting to recognize that that actually doesn't keep us safer. That makes the international community less likely to trust us and, and extremists much more willing to commit acts of violence. So, uh, you know, I think o- oversight is going to be the first issue and, and acknowledging our mistakes and, you know, where, where accounting is to be done to, to make people accountable for the, for the actions that are taken, um, will be the first thing to sort of reestablish the United States as uh, a, a leader in, in the human rights and, and legal community, um, and then start, use that example to start building those sorts of institutions abroad.
0: The, the scary thing, and I'm sure now you, you see this, and I, I know now that you're working with the ACLU, is that in, in the name of security, we have really had so much of our own privacy invaded. Right. And, and so now the, the biggest joke, I think one of the things you brought up in your book was like even in, um, in London where they've got so many of these cameras, these video cameras and right. video surveillance everywhere, and it didn't stop the the terrorism the bombs in in the subway in fact it was you said you know the like what the very next week or a couple of weeks later it only helps in law enforcement later afterward but meanwhile they're dead i mean we even have surveillance tapes of right. the guys for 911 so that isn't the answer
2: right and and it's such a waste of resources i I mean you know there's millions of dollars going into these data collection and data mining programs now that that that, you know our government has fallen in love with this total information awareness idea that uh, that that the privacy community tried to kill when it first reared its ugly head Um, but i think the government is really enamored with this idea that if only we had all the data then we would know everything uh, but really, it doesn't work that way. And if you, if you read the 9-11 Commission report or the uh, joint House-Senate intelligence uh, investigation about 9-11, what they talk about is how the important pieces of information weren't seen because they were lost in these vast streams of data.
0: Right. Only There's now, no time to look at everything.
2: Right. Only now we're actually... <laughs> Create, you know that that stream has turned into a river and an ocean because we're collecting so much more without any sort of focus. And that again is where the Constitution is a very good t- counterterrorism strategy because if you look at the Fourth Amendment, what it talks about is is you know that that the, if the government wants to search or arrest somebody, they need probable cause. They need some reason to believe <clears throat> that somebody has done something wrong before they act. Where now. You know, if you look at the National Security letters issue that, that the FBI was involved with, you know they're just collecting all of this information that, that may or may not be relevant to anything. And let's it, talk
0: a little bit about the National Security sure. Letters That is, Yeah, And I had uh, just recently sent you one of the an email that I had seen about right. that. So let's talk a little bit about those those NSA letters and, and uh, what's happened with all this?
2: Well, uh, under the Patriot Act, it expanded the FBI's ability to use what is called a national security letter, which is which is a, a letter written by an FBI agent, signed out by a special agent in charge. That just now, under after the Patriot Act, all it says is we have an open investigation and the records we're seeking are relevant to that investigation. It's such a low standard, and yet the FBI uh, the department of justice inspector general just released a report in march that said the fbi wasn't even uh, restraining itself to those guidelines and it was actually using similar letters even when they didn't have investigations so they didn't even have investigations open and yet they're going out to uh... telephone companies and financial institutions and just demanding records with no sort of court oversight that uh... that would be required for a search warrant or uh or a wiretap. They're just going out and collecting this information on their own say-so. And uh, what the inspector general found is that the FBI had been using these, issued uh, uh, 143,000 of these letters. And yet, when it came time to discuss what came of all these letters, they could only point to one terrorism investigation that that resulted in a a terrorism-related prosecution. So again, it's this idea that you know, we just want to collect information, rather than, you know, using the genius of our founding fathers and demanding that they focus their efforts on people that they suspect of being involved in crime. Because, you know, what what we saw in 9/11, uh, where after the fact we looked back and found there were all sorts of evidence about these people that we could have used to stop the attacks. Um, in London, it was the same, where after the attacks, they looked at police files. And sure enough, you know, they had had some of these people under surveillance at one point. And they uh, didn't even
0: bother to investigate. Right.
2: And what (laughs) they said is, well, we lacked the resources to pursue those investigations. But where were the resources spent? They were spent on the security cameras.
0: Exactly. You
2: know, so it's, 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 it's not only ineffective, it's not only a violation of privacy and civil liberties. It's actually counterproductive because it takes... You know, good police officers off the street and puts them behind a, a bank of screens that nobody can watch them all.
0: you know, and you talked about the fact that anybody can put on a bomb uh, you know on his on his body and and walk into anywhere. literally. Right. I mean, you can't you can't uh, deal with this and the kind of level that we've been dealing with this. Lloyd says we have about three minutes. I just want you to tell us where you think the balance is between privacy and security. And if you can do that in like two minutes, that yeah. would be great. Um,
2: you, you know, I, I don't think there is a balance. I think that's a false paradigm. Um, our, our liberty is our security. Um, and that's one thing that I think we have to learn. Uh, and Thomas Jefferson, in his first inaugural address, basically made that same argument and said, you know, people are afraid that a constitutional democracy isn't strong. But it is strong because everybody will trust us because we have a transparent and accountable government. And, and, it, and everybody in the country will defend that rule of law at all costs. And, and that's what we've forgotten. And, you know, this idea that we can give up some liberty to be more secure, as we're seeing, is, is not coming to fruition. That, that, that this is actually helping the terrorists more than hurting them.
0: And, and then we're looked at with disdain that we don't walk our talk And that we are not following our own constitution ourselves, and so we lose a lot of credibility with all of the nations that we want to support us. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I want to ha- just have you give your website for the ACLU and any other website that you want to, because Lloyd is saying we're getting close to the end. So, will you please give your website?
2: Yep, uh, ACLU.org has a, a lot of information on our national security programs that I'm working on, and uh, GlobalSecurity.org uh, has some of the uh, other materials that I've written on. on this, these so,
0: what projects. does GlobalSecurity.org do? Uh,
2: it's a it's a clearinghouse for for uh, intelligence experts to uh, to published materials
0: oh great okay well hopefully they'll start listening to you yeah thank you yeah and you are the author of thinking like a terrorist the insights of a former fbi agent it's a terrific book i think you did a great job i i i would love to see you get the uh government accounting office to really do some research into what the fbi has been doing and what they haven't been doing have they done anything at all
2: uh, yeah, they've done some good work. I, I mean, their uh, their ability to get access to some of these programs and materials is a, is a little it's more limited. difficult than than the inspector generals. But um, you know, hopefully, at this point, uh, the inspector general's report on the national security letters is a peek behind the curtain, and hopefully, Congress will get interested and start doing investigations as well.
0: Well, I'd like you to take some of those excerpts from your books and put them as op-ed pieces in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and all that good stuff, because you've done a great job. And thank you so much for all of the, the insights that you've given me, as well as my listeners. You've been terrific, Mike.
2: Great. Thank you, Murray.
0: Okay. We'll talk to you soon. You've been listening to Mike German, who is the author of Thinking Like a Terrorist, in- Insights of a Former FBI Agent, And uh, he was an undercover agent. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. This is Mari Frank. I'm your host of Privacy Piracy. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m., and also please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy, where you can see our previous guests, listen to their interviews, and see who's coming up, and you can even write us an email. Thank you, Lloyd, for being a great engineer, and good night, and stay safe and stay
1: private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.